Welcome to another episode of the DH and East Asian Studies podcast. I'm Amanda Schumann. Today with me, the co-hosting is Alan Christie. Today we have a special guest, Hilda DeVert from Leiden is here to speak with us about the Marcus Project. Marcus is part of a larger project funded by the European Research Council on Communication and Empire, Chinese Empires in Comparative Perspective. Marcus is a reading and text analysis platform with a wide range of functionality, including automated tagging and identification of personal and place names, official titles and time references in classical Chinese, manual and batch tagging of user-supplied keyword lists in all languages, creation of custom tags, flexible filtering of tagged content, and links to a range of online reference tools, including geographical and biographical databases and language and domain-specific dictionaries for online reading. It also offers um, online note tagging and the ability to export to a wide range of formats, including HTML, TEI, to ensure interoperability. And basically it allows you to add markup to your files and then use them for various kinds of research, whether that's further analysis, visualization, tools, etc. Welcome, Hilda. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So before we get started with talking about Marcus, I thought what I'd do is ask Hilda a little bit about her research background and her entry into Chinese studies or East Asian studies and how she got into digital humanities. This is always an interesting question. How much time do we have? Okay. <laughs> how I got into Chinese studies, it is a long, it was a long journey. I, I did it mainly, I think, because I wanted to maintain an interest in various disciplines, but at the same time, see the world, see uh, the disciplines through which we see the world through the eyes of a, a different place, a different culture and a different language. I yeah, I've slowly discovered that my main interest lay in Chinese history. I started out getting interested in the Cultural Revolution, but felt myself drawn back in time further and further. I thought I would write a dissertation on the late Ming and ended up writing one on uh, Song uh, intellectual and political history. Uh, I've maintained that interest pretty much for the last uh, 15, 20 years or so, so I think I... I've gotten stuck a little bit, even though I'm looking back now towards a tongue political fight as well. The digital humanities part came in uh, relatively recently, I would say perhaps uh, four or five years or so, uh, after I uh, already started a teaching uh, career. Initially, it was mainly by trying to figure out what would be the best way to trace communication networks in Chinese history. So I was reading uh, notebooks, uh, was, I got interested in correspondence, but it struck me that uh, it was very difficult for my brain, at least, to keep track of uh, who was talking to whom about what sorts of, of, of topics. I started exploring um, a variety of options, uh, essentially just looking at what, what is available, reading manuals, and ended up with uh, taking sort of uh, summer uh, seminars on uh, texting, coding, basic programming, and then started experimenting myself. And now I've been following up on that interest. That's really interesting. Uh, what, how did you find these classes, or where were you taking these programming classes? I started out taking a summer course. Uh, it was actually not a summer course. It was a, sort of a couple of days uh, that was set up at the Oxford Institute for, what was it called? Uh, Computing Services. It was actually not part of the uh, establishment, uh, shall, can I put it this way? It was run at the time by Lou Bernard, who uh, pretty much invented, well, invented is a big word, but at least was one of the founders of the Text Encoding Initiative, which is a way of encoding texts 
and they ran a, a summer institute where they taught um, people not only, actually mainly not from Oxford, but from various places, uh, not only how to do encoding, but also what you can do with it. Once, once you've encoded a text, uh, what sorts of additions you can do, but also other sorts of things like doing network analysis. Although they didn't go very far in the direction of, of research, it was mainly a text editing kind of process, as the word itself, the I suggests. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, but very hands-on, it sounds like, actually. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So it seems that uh, there was a point at which you got to in which you thought that if you wanted to do something different or explore these networks more, you had to go, you had to go and learn these skills in order, to, in order to work with your research in new ways. Is that how you got to Marcus, or can you talk a little bit about the connection of Marcus to that? Yes. Um, in a way, Marcus was the unexpected byproduct of a larger research project that was based on that initial interest in text encoding. So I started exper- experimenting with uh, encoding a notebook myself, who was talking to whom about what sorts of topics, that, that same question. I applied for some very small pot of money so that I could also ask some graduate students to participate in that same project. We did all of that manually. And that taught us a little bit about the possibilities. Uh, what can you do when you work in this way? Uh, but it's also laborious. It's, it's not something that most people want to be spending a lot of time with. And I got to see also that there might be better ways of doing it, given what we were doing not o- is not only saying here's a person, but we were able to link the information that we had in our sources to databases that already existed. For example, the China Biographical Database, which has all sorts of information about, now I think at this point, 370,000 or so people. We could also link to a Chinese uh, geographical uh, database, uh, which includes many, many places and also their coordinates so that you can map the places that you have in your sources. But it struck myself and then also a postdoc who joined the larger project that I applied for that we could find a way to do this automatically, or at least semi-automatically, that given that these databases, which are essentially dictionaries, existed, we could use those to tag automatically and then do the correcting ourselves. So we now have a platform called Marcus that does the sort of encoding that we did initially, but it does it automatically. It will get personal names, it will get place names, it will do time conversion, official titles, and essentially any other dictionary that you have ready, you can also use to do that. That was that was the basis for it. But it was the unexpected byproduct in the sense that what I had initially thought was that we do a lot of manual tagging and then use the data that we had tagged to create sort of a picture of of how communication changed or developed over time, picture being maps, networks, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we essentially also realized that actually we should should start earlier, that we we could do the tagging uh, automatically and then link that to visualization platforms, which which would work with the data that must mm-hmm. We were talking in the last podcast about the anti-DH LA Review of Books <laughs> piece. And one of the big criticisms of, you know, building sorts of, of tools like this is that it really is just a tool that there's, there's this assumption that there aren't these research questions sort of going into it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you perhaps maybe envision this as a kind of thing in which other people will now take it and do other things with it. What kinds mm-hmm. of things you're thinking, um, and maybe a little later we can talk about really uh, how people can actually contribute or participate in this, but how you move from this singular project into and moving past this idea that it's just really 
a tool that you're building. And in fact, what you're doing is asking new kinds of questions using this particular this particular tool. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring it up because indeed, I think in, in my case, it was a very specific question that um, went into first, you know, putting effort into working digitally. It was a question about how did communication networks uh, evolve during the course of the Song Dynasty or even what would they essentially looked like um, because it's, it's difficult to compute what hundreds of people might uh, might be doing over time. After creating this platform, essentially we initially just sort of thought create something that's, that's useful to us, we realized that actually once you generalize your methodology, this can be applied to a variety of other sorts of mm-hmm. texts. It can be applied to a variety of other disciplines, questions, and, and can also work in teaching. We've seen this now in the last two years or so. We developed, well, we developed it about two years ago, but uh, over the course of, I would say, mainly last year, uh, some people completely different disciplines picked up on it. And it's been very award- rewarding to see that. For example, uh, Martin Baptist One, who at the last Association for Asian Studies meeting showed how by marking up places, only the place name component, in different genres of fiction, you get a, a, a different picture of where different kinds of novels are set. And that, for example, places that we don't associate with a particular genre might actually be very present. But because our interests are drawn to a particular uh, events or the things that we associate with that genre, we tend to forget that, for example, the court can stand out very prominently in a novel that may be about uh, marauding bandits, for example. Uh, we've seen it used in uh, the history of medicine, how do how does knowledge about medical plans spread over time and over space. And art history is, is another field in which uh, people have used it to look at uh, collections and collectors. And I think more and more this will be the case. This has also uh, meant that it has evolved in ways that we hadn't foreseen, that we keep up in a way with demands and interests that make it uh, something quite different from you know, what we may have imagined at the start. But I will also add one, one comment about tools, because indeed it oftentimes is used in a very pejorative kind of way, that uh, it's, it's a tool, it's something you use to sort of you know do something, and so it's very functionalist. To me, uh, first of all, tools are based on its, it's, it's method. It's, it's based on methodological assumptions as well as theoretical assumptions that if you use social network analysis, there are a variety of assumptions that you buy into and you need to be aware of those. So I would say that uh, we have to be very careful when we use that term. I, I, I don't see Marcus simply as a tool in that kind of a sense that it's just something you do. So something, no, it, it's something that uh, will have implications for the way you read, the way you work. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree with you. I have nothing. I have nothing to add to that. Um, in addition to sort of these, these these sort of theoretical questions, I had some sort of practical and logistical questions that I'd like to ask you about because I think oftentimes there are, there are other people who are in your situation who are sitting there thinking about doing something. Maybe not necessarily about doing a big ERC project yet, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people, as we're finding out, sort of this one person with with one project in one computer, and they're wondering how to go beyond that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the funding and the logistics of getting it off the ground. So getting it from your little project to getting the big project. And 
I still find one of the more difficult things, which is finding people qualified to work on your project. <laughs> okay, lots of questions. Uh, so let me start with, with the first question about how do you translate a sort of a small pilot project into something bigger? I'm generally a fan of small pilot projects because you have to demonstrate one way or another that what you are proposing is something that uh, will lead to something potentially of interest to a wider community and that it will make you see things that are unexpected one way or another. So on the basis of the pilot that we did with notebook annotation, I wrote up a larger application, which was a research application. So it was not a digital humanities uh, specific uh, application in the first instance. But I had tied into that project a component that was specifically digital. And I think it was one of the things that I'm, I'm very glad I did that I would recommend that anyone who's considering a research project application that allows them to hire people, that you hire also people with a different disciplinary background so that they contribute something that you, expertise that you don't have. I could not have built Marcus by myself. At the same time, the computer scientist who joined it could also not have built Marcus uh, by himself. Something that very much developed out of a collaboration and, and a continual collaboration. We had initially foreseen that uh, we would mainly focus on uh, visualization of, of networks or in time and space. But through that conversation, we also learned that, no, actually, we, we can go back and, and, and start with the actual annotation of text themselves and then move up to the visualization part. It was on that basis, that actually, that I also began to see, well, if, if we go that direction, there's other things that we need. And so in addition to the, the larger European Research Council grant, we also applied for a uh, digging into data grant, which is more digital humanities focused. And there we uh, focused specifically on developing a module in machine learning, which would allow us to, to make it better. And that's ultimately an important part of it as well, that these things are not perfect and meant to serve a particular need, but with, with caveats that it does as any kind of digital project, I think, does imply that data curation is an important part of it. Debugging is an important part of it. So it takes also certain patience that perhaps a lot of humanities people are not used to. The point that you made about hiring people is a very important one. And I think it is difficult to control that ahead of time. You don't know who's going to be available. Oftentimes you might, even if you do have somebody you think would be very appropriate, they might you know, move somewhere else or get a grant or be in a situation where they are not or cannot remain in a particular place for too long. We have been very lucky and uh, Brent Ho, who is the main collaborator on, on this project, was interested in developing something for historians. I think that is actually very important for people working in the humanities, that when they do work with computer scientists, social scientists as well, that uh, there is, at least on the part of those coming to the humanities from a different background, an interest in humanities projects. Because ultimately, and I'm not sure that we've done that sufficiently yet, but we're oftentimes interested in different questions, a different way of working, also a different way of visualizing, for example, than they might be used to. And what I think we need to avoid is to have standard packages, standard answers for our uh, research questions. Having a computer programmer who can deal with that, is interested in taking up the challenge of working with, for example, uh, sometimes very messy data sets, that is, that is an important 
uh, consideration, I think, when you start off. It's, it's very interesting you say that because Alan and I have had this conversation for years now. Back when I was still at Santa Cruz, um, I would go occasionally with Alan to some of these meetings where we were trying to work out if there was a way in which we could work with people in the computer science department in specific ways. In other words, not so much having, I mean, I, I, I sort of agree with you uh, in the sense that I think sometimes people design a project in the digital humanities. The person they want to find, they want to hire a programmer to come in and do the project for them. So they're not that interested in what that person's background or interests necessarily are. They just want someone to come and do it. I think this has been changing over the last few years. But for a long time, I felt like that this was the type of projects people were doing. So people would apply for a grant money and write in a technical person. And then you'd go and look for that technical person. And sometimes, you know, in order to do X, rather than thinking of it as sort of a project in which both of you could develop new research questions in different sectors, and maybe in the end, have something different than what you started out with in your initial grant even. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, that you had someone like Brent and um, who who I know, who I think is fabulous. Um, He has a computer science degree, but has a background in which he had done previous projects or previous work. He had a, uh, he worked mainly on digital libraries, but indeed had a connection with the digital humanities um, department at National Taiwan University. Wonderful work is being done. But I, I totally agree with what you said also, that interest has to work both ways. It's not just that computer scientists have to be interested in the sorts of questions we ask, but also the other way around. I think as somebody who wants, as, as a historian, for example, who wants to work digitally, I think you do also have to uh, know what's possible and what may work, uh, what may be desirable, to what extent what you're creating can mimic research flows that we already have to make it really useful to us. I think you also need to know a little bit about programming, perhaps, or certainly what's possible when you work digitally. Yeah, I'm starting to think that this might be sometimes the thing that's holding people back. You know, there are a lot of people who are kind of interested, but I wouldn't say anti-technical, but maybe they don't have enough knowledge about what's possible. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. go ahead. I may fear that the, it's going to be a very steep learning curve to get the knowledge to engage in the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which doesn't have to be the case, I think, but it does, it does take... A willingness to step out of your comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I kind of agree with, um, you know, what you said earlier, too, about the pilot projects. Like, that's why they're so important for somebody to take the initiative to go ahead and do something even on a small scale on their own computer to start in that way. Because if you have the interest in it, then you're most likely to start trying to find out what you need to do to make it bigger. And think of this larger project and think of these grants. If you could tell us a little bit about, also a bit of a logistical question here, but if you could tell us a little bit about the timeline for development, like how long this has taken to get to this point. I think probably for most of most of our listeners coming from the China side, but perhaps also maybe from broader East Asian studies, they've seen or heard about Marcus. It's been advertised a, a bit on the listservs and whatnot. So people might have looked at it, may not have looked at it yet. But I think perhaps sometimes people, if they see something like this and they get a little bit, wow, that's such a big project. How am I going to get there? What do you do to get there? So yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about that and maybe also related to that, your role in managing the project would be really interesting to hear about, especially since you mentioned that you you feel like you're working collaboratively sometimes or more in tandem with someone like Brent, for example. So the timeline, we started, uh, I think, January 2013. And uh, Marcus itself, we started developing, I think, in in the spring of 2013, or slightly later, because as I sketched earlier, that 
uh, it was also a process of discovery that we started thinking, okay, let's specialize data. And then actually we have these data, let's now think of a way in which we can bring in the dictionaries to do the tagging itself. So I think by mid to late 2013, we really started designing Marcus. By the summer of 2014, I think we sort of had a first version that we could show a larger audience. Uh, so it's been it's been about two plus years, which it feels like it has been longer. But, uh, <laughs> it's it's been relatively recent, and essentially this is and probably will remain an ongoing project. We have a variety of things that we'd like to add, or a list of priorities. Also, we we do take uh, feedback on that as well, as in, we learn from doing workshops what people are interested in, what other features we we could add. So, for, for example, initially it was tagging, but then we said, okay, actually this is also a reading platform. So we add dictionaries, uh, classical Chinese, but also the sources that we have so that people can use it as a reading tool. If you're not, you know, if you don't want to export your tagging results for visualization, you can also now add notes and comments. So it has become more multifunctional as, uh, as it develops, and uh, this will probably uh, remain uh, the case in, in the future. So my role, and I would say to a lesser extent, that's also the role of, of scholars more generally, I think, when, when we think about tools, digital tools, but I think actually reference sources uh, more broadly, is to think about ways in which I would like to use this. If in an ideal world, I, ha I have my sources and I, I have them as, as in, in full text. What would I like to be able to do? And it struck me very early on that one of the things I did not want to do is to use commercial databases that make me limit my search as soon as I look something up and that, or that I get lots of results and I don't know how to work with it. What I would like to be able to do is to use as many of the sources that I possibly can, but to find results that are of interest to me that I can I can sort them in various ways. And that is where so a lot of the design of Marcus went into. That is to say, where well, we have places, we have time, and then we allow people to filter those. We allow them to put in their own dictionaries or to have the system now suggest keywords to them. You can do an analysis of the text based on something you're interested in, sort of see, okay, now show me keywords that are appropriate to this text. Comments, we have things coming up, like for example, I want to be able to tag relationships in my text. They're all things that as I'm working with it or if I'm doing my research, I think, oh, I would like to have that. And then we be uh, in, in discussion, go through, okay, how would we best do this? And then find a way to include it in our list. Uh, we would like to, for example, in addition to the databases that we connect, we would like for you to be able to create databases as you're reading in, in Marcus. A lot of the things that we now have to do sort of in, in separate pieces of software or separate environments, you would be able to, to do within one environment. So that's how we think about it. My role has, has been mainly in the design process. So the, the thinking behind, you know, how do we want to bring in text? What do we want to do with the text we, we put in there? And then also thinking about what you know, would be appealing to students and, and scholars and how do we prioritize. Brent has been trying to help to figure out how we can actually realize this. It's very interesting because in order to program something like that, you have you have to think ahead to, I mean, I'm thinking about this with sort of a programmer's hat on for a second, but you have to write code that is very responsive and dynamic. You're, you're going to have to change it. And another part actually that, that I've forgotten is that it's very much also an iterative process that we discuss what we're going to do, we try something else, 
tested. I've been sort of the main tester for a while. I think now we, we have some graduate students who help with that as well. Because oftentimes it turns out that actually maybe this is not working the way we would like to see and so, uh, in terms of icons, in terms of where you place things, as well as in terms of functionality. So that's it's a constant process of giving feedback, testing, improving, uh, which takes some getting used to. I think many of us are sort of well, academics can be perfectionist and so like to see the end result, you know, in one go. And that's something that you slowly learn to let go of. That's it's something that has to grow over time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm still learning how to do that. <laughs> the perfectionist and not wanting to show anyone anything until something is 100% perfect. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. And, um, uh, yeah, have it all, you know, in one go. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's not going to happen. So, so we're learning that from computer science too. The fact mm. that there's versions and <laughs> and updates and uh, yeah, all of that. So that you mentioned the graduate students working on the project. Are they? Uh, you know, you can correct me if if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that they're funded through the ERC project, yes. and then they work explicitly on the project. So their dissertations. So that must their dissertations have to do both with this this sort of overall theme of communication and empire and use Marcus? How does that how does no. that work? It's slightly different for some European Research Council projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, the PhDs get hired as part of the way the research is uh, designed. This was not the case for this project. So okay. I had uh, three postdocs, uh, one working on Chinese history, one on uh, European history, because there's a comparative element to the project as well, and then the uh, digital humanities postdoc. The student assistance, uh, the student assistant was not defined. So it's... Uh, a certain number of hours, and uh, only a few of them have been involved in testing. Mark is doing videos, for example. Uh, you should look at our videos and you can see what wonderful contributions these students have made. But their projects all vary and are not directly related to this project. And some of them may use Marcus, but others won't. So it's Brent who's pretty much done the programming on this, or...? Mainly the machine learning component, which is funded by a side project, was undertaken by Mia Shangfa, who is a postdoc now affiliated with the Leiden Institute for Advanced Computing Science. Ah, okay, okay. So there was a previous programmer as well then. Were these, in both cases, uh, with Brent and with this postdoc, are these people who were working full-time on the development of Marcus when they were working on another words full-time every day of the week pretty much mainly yes it's never the only thing finishing dissertations doing publications going to conferences developing their own interests that that is certainly part of it as well but it was indeed that was their main research task uh, alan do you have questions i guess the only question that i would have at the moment is for someone even working in in japanese mm-hmm. what would be the um the thing that we would do to you know make marcus doable in Japanese? It's a really good question because it's actually related to my next question, which is about other uses of Marcus or future directions of Marcus. So if... if... There you go. Why don't you ask that? Because again, my sleep-addled brain <laughs> <laughs> no, is it's... not producing sentences very well at the moment. I mean, we can talk about them separately if you want, but yeah, I mean, one of my questions was also about applications of Marcus in other languages, Japanese, Korean, and then also the second question would be then, it might be related to future directions for Marcus. It's, it's a great question. That's one that we have received regularly and that we have been thinking about. We would like to expand it in direction of better options for modern Chinese as well as Korean in the first instance, uh, Japanese hopefully as well. But technically speaking, there is no reason why we couldn't do it for other languages. I think the design of the system is, is something that's broadly applicable. However, we do rely on databases that already exist. It's impossible for us to start 
creating databases about uh, Japanese people, Japanese places, Japanese temples, whatever you might think of. If such resources exist and they are freely available online, we are interested in extending the capabilities of the system. We have actually had this in mind also in terms of future applications and we, we are talking to uh, a few people who have been working on, on Korean and modern Chinese sources to, to do something in that regard. Uh, for Japanese, very little has matured. So the question to me would, would be to, you know, do you know of, of good databases, dictionaries that can be used to do something for this in, in the Japanese case? If there are, we, we would definitely like to hear. I don't know mm. of anything at the moment, but that's uh, partly because that's not a, a realm that I've been investigating. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that there are, but I, I'm certainly not the person who could answer that question. And uh, so it'd be interesting to find the person who can answer that question from, from my perspective. But in terms of the, you know, the ability of the um, of markup to to read Chinese text, um, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of importing a Japanese dictionary or a Korean dictionary as, as one of those uh, steps, I assume. That's part of the process. I mean, it's not the only, if you only work with a dictionary, you get a lot of noise. So what we've been doing over time is little by little to make the system more accurate and that you do through machine learning or by knowing uh, certain patterns or by linking it to databases so that, for example, when you mark up people's names, uh, there may be overlap with place names, with way names, but if you know in what types of sentences people tend to appear, places tend to appear, you can have the system make a, a good guess about what it would most likely be under those circumstances. Or you say could connect. If we have a person already in that text, it's most likely going to be this other person who has already connected them in an external database. So that's why it's useful not to just have one dictionary, but to have a variety of good databases that you can use to make a slightly more intelligent <laughs> system than if you just sort of randomly go for show me exact matches between the terms that I have in the dictionary and the terms that you have in the text. There is a graduate student in modern Chinese politics, I believe, at UC San Diego, whose name escapes me, but in any case, and he's put together a database pretty much on his own, I think using, you know, visualbasic.net, something like this, and the databases of CCP elite networks, basically. So this is really interesting because it's somebody who had, it seems to me, also started out with his advisor's help, of course, but he, he created this database on his own. So I think, you know, part of the possibility for Marcus is that if there are other people who have similar types mm-hmm. of things, maybe even on their desktop or whatever, and they're just, or their laptop, and they're working on this on their own, they're creating these sort of mini databases and whatnot on their laptops that Marcus could offer an opportunity for them, if they're willing to make this available more broadly, open access, then this would be a way for them to hook it up into Marcus in, in the future. So I I think that, you know, uh, my previous discussions with Brent on the subject also were that what you basically need is you need to have the most important thing is that, you know, this is data that is freely accessible. (laughs) So whether it's yours or it's on another website like the Chinese biographical database, it needs to it needs to be freely accessible and uh, openly available to connect into it. So it's an issue kind of also of like copyright and this kind of thing. So it's an issue of making it available. You know, so when I, for example, when I spoke with Brent about doing something that I think would be wonderful, which is taking uh, political terms in a glossary mm-hmm. of CCP, uh, CCP political in terms and glossary over the past, you know, uh, 60 years or whatnot, and creating 
some sort of database for these terms and then connecting that into Marcus, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Of course, Brent then said to me, so are you going to create it? And I said, okay, well, I don't have this created right now. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine that there are a lot of people out there, hopefully some people who are listening to the podcast, who have this kind of thing that they've been working with in their own research. I've spoken with a lot of graduate students and people who've recently gotten their PhDs who have been using various sorts of online tools and offline tools to create their own sort of data repositories and data sets. So these things exist. We just need to find where these people are. Yes. Well, and this is one of the other, you already hinted at future development. One of the things that uh, has been on the list for a while, so we will will be getting there, I hope, is a uh, sort of shared site where you could upload dictionaries uh, or share files that you have marked up. Uh, The advantage for that would be is that, say, uh, certain things may not be of interest to everybody. So we only provide some default places, people, times. Those are things that are quite standard. But some things like, say, you have your political terms, you know, somebody else might have their plants, their animals, whatever, you know, colony terms. But we we provide people the opportunity to put domain-specific dictionaries with a short description in a public site and you can then say within your customer you log into the system you have a lot of things that can be customized you can select which reference sources you want to show but you can also select which dictionaries you would like to load when you do the tagging Uh, you could create your own based on a, a regular expression you've done or a keyword list or you could import the ones that people have already provided. And that allows you to really start working in a multi-dimensional way, which was what this tool is really designed to, to be like. To take an example that goes along the lines that you just suggested, I'm interested in, in Yang Wanli, the 12th century author, interested in his correspondence, but I know he also wrote a political treatise, where indeed he talks about 12th topics in politics. If I want to see, you know, what does he say about these things in his letters, I'm reading through them all, but it's still very hard to keep track of that. What I do is I create a list of those, maybe associated terms, and then I also tag those throughout the letters. But at the same time, I can then see to which people, in what years, does he write about those those topics. I could use terms that somebody else, for example, has done something about Neo-Confucianism, has some terms there. I could use their dictionary to do that very quickly as well, should I, should I want to add that dimension as well. So I think down the line, we will get to sort of hopefully communal way of doing this this sort of annotation as well. We also hope to, for example, have a forum where people could also comment on what they found that worked. Uh, because some features I've, I've noticed when doing workshops too, you can only cover so much. And some things, like for example, that you can batch edit a whole document, people may not have noticed. And it takes a little while playing around with it to sort of see what, what the kinds of functionality are. And by having these sorts of ways of, of communicating with other users, I would hope that utility will be extended beyond what you do when you only work with it yourself. For all these extra features, I'm not going to ask you for deadlines <laughs> on dates because I, I, I think that's the Please wrong don't. question. No, 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 no. <laughs> I guess what I'm more interested in, which is kind of related to a little bit of what you were talking about with the ERC project, are these things for which you've applied for more funding or has this institutionally, has this been picked up by the library or something? Uh, we're working on both fronts. So I just yesterday worked on another application that's actually initiated by somebody else, but there would be a component, which is also very exciting for us because it's, again, a completely different field in which we're heading with that. But it will, at the same time, allow us to do, for example, more genre-specific markup. If you have a certain text, like local gazetteers, or you have uh, Nyampu, chronological biographies, and any kind of official document, it's structured a certain way. The definition of a genre is structured. And what this would allow us to do is to do a lot of automated marking that's based on the structural features of a text, so that you would automatically, if you have Nyampu, get all sorts of events in a person's life and what it 
says about that person so that you could create far richer biographical databases or simply use it as, as a reference uh, further down the line. So this, this is one way. Um, we are also thinking of text comparison, which is something that we might actually add ourselves because uh, there's various ways of doing text comparison, but it's also something that particularly people in literature, perhaps working more on, on uh, pre-20th century texts, are interesting in. Mm-hmm. Are there exact citations, quotations? Actually, it's maybe something that you do for uh, modern texts as well, mm-hmm. uh, fuzzy overlaps between texts and, and so on. We are also interested, because at this point, this is a fair criticism, it works mainly within the Google Chrome environment. We would like to have this on a server or um, make it a standalone version as well, various sorts of cleanup as well, where you could create your own ideas, your own database mm-hmm. within the system, more visualization possibilities. Mm-hmm. We now do link to visualization platforms, but there may be others that people want to use. Sustainability is an important consideration and one that I think many projects are struggling with. I have been asking around and I have been to many international forums where that is a key question. You get money for five years, yeah. right? And then uh, this is this is a huge question in the field right, right now. In and general, but well, the standard thing to do then is that you deposit your code in GitHub. How many mm. people in the humanities find that useful? You think very few. Yeah, the ones who are digital, yeah, who are very computer literate, will know what to do. But the fast we have now more than four thousand six hundred users of, of Marcus. This is after having done some workshops in, in various places. Okay. Most of these people are using it because it's a service that mm-hmm. they can easily access and do lots of things with. Mm-hmm. So I have been very insistent on the fact that it has to remain as a service. We, we provide the code too, and people can do other things with it. But for the vast majority of people, it's only useful if it is you can just go to the site and use it, or if it's a standalone um, piece of piece of software. So we have been negotiating. You mentioned the library. Yeah. Um, where to go is not a straightforward question. That it's mm-hmm. something that we take up at a high level too. It. You can, within your institution, I think the library is the best choice, and we are talking to them. But oftentimes, libraries want only things that are written in a certain code or that mm-hmm. will fit into what they already have. Understandably, uh, there are solutions to that as well, they, and, and that's what we're currently working on. But one would hope that actually, also at the national, international level, that these sorts of questions get addressed. That you set certain criteria for if a you know, project is useful and from time to time shows itself uh, to be to continue to be useful to a community, let's support it. And I would hope that yes, that is something that uh, we can get good recommendations from from funders, from perhaps also international digital humanities uh, consortia. This is a long-standing problem, I think, actually, because what I've noticed too, you know, I'm going to work on the Maoist Legacy Project in Freiburg, and this is another question. This is a question we've been talking about as well. Even if we have it in the end, we have a database of documents which we don't feel are going to change in terms of the content that much. Obviously, the infrastructure is going to change, but also we need a place to house it long term in terms of servers, servers and environment and all these other sorts of things. And so I think the talk, you know, I shouldn't I shouldn't say too much about this because I don't know exactly what the final sort of decision has been. But we had been having a discussion about would it be uh, the university library or is this the kind of thing that we want at the Staatsbibliothek Stabi, which is the big sort of institution in Berlin. Um, I think that was the direction which there were more talks, but it's a national institution it's a, a state institution so it's not it's not an international consortium run kind of thing it's what you said so you know stabi has become a place in germany at least in which a lot of these projects are sort of depositing their databases or their projects at in the end so yes and, and generally I, th- I think one of the reasons why we like libraries too although i think that, that for them it's, it's become an issue is that they tend to be willing to hold on to things once they've accepted it they're less likely to dump it 
what yeah. day to do next. You okay there, Alan? Uh, I am, yes. Yeah, no, okay. I, was, I was thinking, indeed, our library is trying to play a similar kind of role in helping projects that have gotten some funding to get themselves going to be able to be sustainable after mm-hmm. that. My sort of last question for you is real simple. Do you have any sage advice for other people who are getting started in similar projects that spin into these huge uh, projects later on? Oh my. <laughs> Definitely not sage advice. I think some people might want to say, like, don't do it at all. Is <laughs> uh, when I, I was at a conference last week where we had a panel that specifically dealt with the yeah, big projects and, and their po- the politics behind them. And uh, yes, it, uh, you can become a full-time administrator. That could be the danger of it. But uh, on the whole, I would still be positive. I think what uh, I've, my feeling now coming at, at an end of this project is that most of what, I've, what has come out of this are things that I couldn't have done by myself, not in a lifetime. And we have been able to do things, I think, that have contributed to definitely my own research, but also increasingly now the research and, and, and the teaching of others. And that's that's been very rewarding to see. I would say other sage advice is uh, don't feel like you have to do anything. I think when you have any question, any historical question in my case, but I think that would be true across disciplines, you have a good question in mind, evaluate what are the best methods to do it. And it may be that there are digital methods out there that will bring you either better results or another kind of perspective on the sources. I think these things can also be easily combined. That's certainly the case in, in, in my own work. Um, when you go for a large project, I would say write in a full-time computer scientist or somebody who has uh, very good programming skills and make them a co-researcher. Um, they're not there to sort of do the technical part of, of the work and, and not show up for two years. I think it, it my sense at least is that uh, unless this is a collaborative relationship, the results are fairly predictable. I've seen lots of projects where you sort of see the person who comes to present it sort of show that they don't know very much what's what's under the hood, and that's that's generally not a good thing. It means that you get standard applications that produce standard uh, and predictable results. Uh, I think the best uh, projects are the ones that um, come out of a... A genuine um, attempt to also create something that uh, that produces good research and that, that matches our research methods and interests. And also very important, I think, have the right expectations. Sometimes it means that we have to adjust, you know, how we tend to think about what's what's acceptable. Uh, a good example of that is if, if you, and now one of the experiments we're doing is to detect um, elite networks, uh, political elite networks, across tens of thousands of texts. Um, there will be errors in there. Mm-hmm. And and you curate your data, there may still be errors in there, and it means that you have to um, so get used with what um, perhaps scientists are oftentimes more used to when you work at a larger scale, that um, a certain level of inaccuracy doesn't mean that your results will be unacceptable. Yeah, things like working with that's, 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 data that may be unsettling <laughs> yeah. to some extent uh, as well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we're buying into something uh, entirely uh, different out of the blue, but it means that sometimes these things actually can highlight things that we cannot see when we work with our traditional ways of of working. So I would say, yeah, um, be open, be willing to experiment and uh, have the right expectations about what may come out. Um, Be willing to to be surprised, uh, be willing to be curious, Uh, but don't expect that... um, it can sort of automatically generate things for you uh, that you don't yeah, put an effort into understanding. Uh, great, fantastic. 
So I want to thank Hilda today for being our guest on the D, uh, DH and East Asian Studies podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks, Alan, for co-hosting. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Amanda, and thank you very much, Hilda. It was great joining the conversation. And we hope next time Maggie will be able to join us again. And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. We hope that you'll tune in next time. Mm-hmm.